Listen up, everybody. On Tuesday, March 19th, 4.15 Eastern Time, that's 1.15 here local in LA, I'll be hosting a webinar to discuss Cambria's two new ETFs, the Cambria Tactical Yield ETF, ticker TYLD, and the Cambria Micro and Small Cap Shareholder Yield ETF, ticker MYLD. Head over to Cambria's Twitter and LinkedIn pages to find the registration link. Once again, that's March 19th at 4.15 Eastern Time. Look forward to seeing you. Carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risk factors, charges, and expenses before investing. This and other information can be found by visiting our website at www.cambryfunds.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing or sending money. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of capital. The Cambry ETFs are distributed by Alps Distributors, Inc., member FINRA, FINRA. Welcome to the Meb Favor Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, my friends. We got such a fun episode to prepare you for the NFL draft next week. Nobel laureate Richard Thaler is back with Wharton's Cade Massey to talk about their old paper on the NFL draft that even the GOAT, Bill Belichick, has read. The guys share what they learned years ago, namely that NFL teams overvalue the top picks. They shouldn't trade up. And even after all the scouting teams do, their ability to pick the best player at any pick is about the same as flipping a coin. We talk about why the Bears won the trade against the Panthers this year, what they think about Mr. Irrelevant, Brock Purdy's success last year, and the future of data analytics in sports. As we wind down, we dive into why this inefficiency still exists after they published a paper almost 20 years ago, and how teams battle some of the same issues asset managers face, like career risk, impatient stakeholders, and model aversion. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. It's always exciting when YChart releases a new enhancement to the platform, and just recently they launched the new Attribution Analysis Tool. It can help you see what's driving a portfolio's performance, displayed with quick-hitting and easy-to-understand heat map and bar chart views. You can use this for funds, ETFs, and model portfolios and see a quick screenshot of the top eight contributors and detractors over any time period or look at the full attribution table. I've used it to check out some of the strategies and love how easy it is to use. For current YChart users, you're likely already familiar with the power of their report builder and proposal generation offerings. Now you can integrate attribution tables and visuals into your proposals to help tailor the investment story that resonates with your clients. Check out this new feature for yourself and get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial by going to ycharts.com slash meb dash Faber or just click the link in the show notes for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Richard Thaler and Cade Massey. Professors, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thank you. Glad to be here. Professor Thaler has been here before. This is a first for Cade, although he's a active podcast host of the Moneyball podcast, which I've been catching up on. has been super fun. We're going to talk about a lot today. It's Masters Week. The NFL draft is coming up, which I figure we kind of have to start on. Because you guys wrote a, wrote a paper. I mean, look, this is, you guys, this is about a decade old. Do I have that right? Are we in the 10-year anniversary this uh, this summer? 
Depends on what counts as the origin. More day. than that. <laughs> Where'd, uh, who came up with the idea? Which one of y'all was scratching noodles said, you know what, let's take a look at the draft. That part of the idea I can take credit for, but you know, that's only just getting us going. I do. I remember explicitly walking into Dick's office saying, Dick, I think you got to work with me on this. What was the reaction? Yeah. I think I'd been around long enough. He he felt obligated to help me with something is kind of the way it goes, but also it helps that it was football. You see, if you want to drag Dick into something, it helps if he's amused by it and he's amused by sports, but let me give you the date. That was 1999. That was the 1999 draft about this time of year, 1999. Well, to date it listeners, the inspiration very well could have been 1999, you see who the first pick was, Tim Couch. That may have been you pulling your hair out and said, hold on, we got to talk about this. There's a paper here somewhere. The year before, it was Peyton Manning. I'm a Bronco fan, so that one may have been justified. But the next year, not so much. Yeah, Peyton Manning followed by Ryan Leaf. And we'll get into this. Tell us the quick thesis of the paper, and then we'll kind of walk forward if anything's changed. The world's any different today. The basic question we were interested in is uh, an economics question, which is what people trade picks. And, um, you know, I'm partly a finance guy. And is that market for pick trading efficient? And it was our casual impression that it was pretty hard to forecast who was going to be good, but that teams were willing to pay out a lot of value in picks as the Panthers did this year with the bears in order for the right to go first. And that would only be rational if it was pretty easy to determine who was going to be the best player. And is it, and you know, if you just look at the list of names with any kind of objective eye, you're going to say, whoa, that looks pretty hard. People were roughly indifferent between Peyton Manning and Ryan Leaf, one of the best quarterbacks in history, one not in that category. And if that one's a close call, then... Uh... So that was the idea. You test it, and turns out that what? Like that there was like a sliver of difference. These guys were just flipping coins or there's some real arbitrages here to have. The first stat we ever looked into, and it was kind of a, is this worth digging deeper question was what's the probability that one player drafted is better over his career than the next player drafted his position. So like the second quarterback versus the third quarterback, the fifth linebacker versus the sixth linebacker. And one of the rationales for that question is that's often what a team is thinking about as they're deciding whether or not to trade up. It's like, I can take this guy, the six, he's, he's going to come to me, the sixth best receiver, or I could trade up. I get the fifth best receiver. So a simple stat, what's the chance that a guy is drafted, a guy is better than the next guy at his position. And we literally call it the better than the next guy stat. So across, and this is literally the first thing we look for to find out whether it's worth doing all the work that you have to do a real research project. That probability across the entire draft is 52%, which is flipping coins, basically. Yeah, I mean, you, you think about if you were perfect, it would be 100%. If you're literally flipping coins, it's 50%. And it's 52%. 
And I should say that, you know, we first draft of the paper was 2005, I think. And it was published quite a bit later because no one believed our results. But I was involved in a project of updating this stuff. And various football nerds have also done so. And everything we found in 2005 is still true, including that 52% number. Maybe it's 53%. I mean, it the, the basic story is true and with much, much better data. One of the most amazing things about that is that it's not even just the basic story. It's this weird shape. We found this weird shape. You wouldn't expect this shape that we found. The, the value of a draft pick, it's increasing from, we found it to be increasing deep into the first round. The, the, we found that the least valuable pick of the first round was the first pick because it's so expensive. But it's this hump. You get this hump in the first round, and then it starts coming down. Very unusual shape. All these guys are replicating it now with, as Dick says, much better data. We had really coarse data. And these guys are now using the all the advanced stats. And you get the same curve. It's just remarkable. The same weird shape is just popping out, you know, replication after replication. Yeah, so to be clear what that curve is, and I think if we had a conceptual breakthrough in the paper, it was to think about the value of picks in terms of surplus. So you get a player and you're going to have to pay that player some money and there's a salary cap that's binding in the NFL, unlike in some sports. And so, you know, we're economists. The value of something is how much you get minus how much you pay. And the league specifies how much players are going to get paid as rookies. And it's strictly declining. So the first guy gets paid the most, and then the second, and then the third. And so the first pick, you have anybody you can choose from, but you got to pay that guy a lot more. And so how can it be that the 10th pick is worth more than the first one? Well, it's because you have to pay the first one quite a bit more, and he's only slightly better. And, you know, now you can question about whether whether this curve slopes up throughout the first round or halfway through the first round. That doesn't really matter. I mean, it, it, it matters if you are got a sharp pencil out. But we don't think the first pick is worth even as much as the 10th pick. And... What the Panthers, that's about what the Panthers trade was, right? Were they at 10 or nine? Something like that. And, you know, they paid a bushel basket of picks and a player to get a pick that we think is about as good as the one they had. So I'm guessing you guys side on the side of the Bears on this one, which is, you know, you think about it, it was kind of interesting. Panthers now owned by a hedge fund manager, a slightly different type of hedge fund manager than the one that owns the Red Sox, right? The one that owns the Red Sox, a little more quantitative, managed futures background, very data analytic heavy, arguably one of the kind of best examples of adopting sports analytics early 
what's the grade you guys give this trade on both sides? <laughs> I'm happy, to, you know, as a guy who's lived in Chicago since 1995, I'm happy to see the Bears do something smart. That's what I'm going to say. It was just a few years ago that they did the opposite. They traded up to get the first pick and took Mitch Trubisky. And they traded like two spots. They gave up a bunch to move just a, just a little Just bit. a few spots, right. And, um, you know, he was clearly not the best quarterback <laughs> in that draft. And that was, I mean, that's one that we had right, you know, immediately. Our reactions instantly were this is, I mean, we weren't alone. It's a lot to pay to move up two spots for, for anybody, much less Trubisky. But what's true is that one of the, only substantive refinements to our results in the subsequent years has been that the quarterbacks look a little different and the the slope in some studies doesn't go up at all for quarterbacks that if you're drafting a quarterback you want to be as high as possible you know it depends on the right price there's not that much difference between drafting 10th and first it's relatively flat in these recent studies but what's true is that there are all the positions are a little different, but there's one that's categorically different from the others, and that's QBs. And so, if ever you're going to hold on to those top picks, that would be the position. But it doesn't justify paying what they paid to move up to get that position. And it goes to something that we've said about the first pick all along the first pick is the most pick, valuable pick in the draft, but only if you don't use it. You need to take advantage of that market value and move it. That's a great line. And you think back, you guys talk about the chart, you know, Jimmy Johnson and everyone's got kind of, they talk about the the values and it'd be funny, like, you know, I'm sure you guys could publish it like a, a and maybe you have like an alternative value chart, like, like, like a little one pager for these NFL execs. Who do you think has really um, done a great job of adopting some of the ideas you guys talk about? Because, you know, you read the first line of your paper. Two of the building blocks are modern neoclassical economics, rational expectations, and market efficiency. I'm, I'm picturing like an NFL owner, you know, starting through this paper. Who's really adopted it? And then what are some of the main, you know, kind of offshoots of this? Like you start to think about other players and positions and running backs and, you know, kickers and everything else. How's it all fold in? Yeah, I will tell you a story that Bill Belichick, who was an economics major at Wesleyan, read the paper a boston globe reporter asked him you know so i I, i'm convinced that uh, belichick it was fine without us um i know there's that famous that famous sailor humility yeah yeah you see there you go you know i think the teams that are heavily into analytics are pretty well known the Ravens, the Browns, the the Eagles, the Bills. Who am I leaving out, Cade? I think you've just named the top the top groups for sure. But we've got you know now we've got a new maybe we're on the cusp of a new generation of analytics background GMs with Quasi in Minnesota. We'll see. You know, give him some time. Give him some time. Oh yeah, he's very sharp, and he was you know a protege of Andrew Barry at the Browns. So, yeah, I I think there will be more. You know, it's, you know, I gave a talk at the Sports Analytics Conference. The, so the last week of life as we know it, the, you were supposed to be in town and 
You, you didn't make it, right, Kate? But I got the message that that was going to be a super spreader. Event. Right. So I, 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 stayed, I stayed at home that year. So this was March 2020. And the theme of my talk was how long it takes teams to learn. And I have that chart of three-point shooting. And if you go back to the Larry Bird, Michael Jordan era, Larry Bird's three-point shooting percentage is about the same as Steph Curry's. Now, I'm not saying he's as, he was as good um, because Curry is unconscious, but if you just look at that percentage, it's about the same. Larry Bird would take two a game. You know, Steve Kerr, who was on the team with Michael Jordan, had two years when he was 50% from three-point range. And he would get three shots a game, something like that. And so there's a curve that just goes very gradually up. You know, I'm always teasing Daryl Morey that he was the first guy to be able to do the math that uh, 0.4 times three is greater than 0.5 times two. And, you know, he gets paid a lot of money for something pretty simple. Um, which of course is completely unfair. Uh, but but it is shocking at how long that took. And I th- you know, it's still the case that teams like the Sixers take it to the limit, and there are some teams that still don't seem to quite get it, but I think the league kind of gets it, but it's 30 years. And that was the point with with the People going back and redoing our study, uh, you know, the first real written version was 2005. So, you know, we're 17 years out and, you know, well, the Panthers haven't read the paper. And, you know, what's happened is, you know, Kay was talking about quarterbacks are different. The main main thing is that they're different is they're worth a lot. And that salary, it's not a function of uh, position. So all all the rookies, you know, they're they're all getting underpaid. If if they become starters, they're bargains. But the quarterbacks are huge bargains. So Cade's right that if you're going to, if you're going to blow a first pick, it might as well be on a quarterback. But they're, they're not much more predictable. So who are they going to take this year, Cade? Is this uh, set in stone? There seems to be three choices that everybody keeps uh, floating around. Well, one of the interesting things to me is what I read at the time was that they didn't have a particular quarterback they wanted to take. They just wanted the option of figuring it out. That makes it even stranger. What an even stranger decision then. I agree, but I also don't think it's uncommon. I think they, 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 you know, they're, they're, they're still doing a lot of work this time of year between the end of the season and the draft. There's a lot of sorting. You might think, haven't they seen enough? Haven't they got enough data? But there's still a lot of sorting out. But we used to say the same that I believe. You know, it's easy for these guys to be cool and and buy our buy our study in January. But by the time April rolls around, they've seen so much tape and they've debated it with their guys around the table so much that they're convinced that they know 
which player is better than the other player, which offensive lineman they have to have of the two or three that they're considering. And I'm sure it's the same with quarterback. Yeah, they convinced themselves. You know, the year the year our paper first came out, my friend David Leonard, who was now a big shot at the New York Times, but was then a young whippersnapper. He was still writing sports back then. That was Yeah, he, he would occasionally write a sports article. He's a big sports fan. And he wrote a piece about it. And somebody... Somebody from the Bay Area interviewed me, and the Niners had the first pick that year. And they were spending months choosing between Alex Smith and Aaron Rodgers, and they couldn't decide. And a reporter calls me and says, if they asked you what would you do, uh, what would you say? I said, I would put up a big sign, first pick, 20% off. Now, of course, they didn't do that. And they flipped a coin and it came up Alex Smith. And Rodgers didn't get taken until pick 20 or 22 or something like that. So, you know, if they had traded down to 10, they would have likely gotten Rodgers, maybe or Smith or whatever, and a bunch of other players. And that, you know, we just see that story repeated over and over. So when you're trying to like, let's say you're one of these teams trying to really assess these top players and let's say they already kind of understand, you know, y'all's paper and, um, but, but you're actually just focusing on um, picking the best player, like but even between these three quarterbacks, you know, and thinking about combine, interviewing players. Kate, I know you do a lot of work in kind of human analytics and performance measurement. You know, how much does that play a role in kind of their decisions? Because so much still seems like it's kind of shoot from the hip, like almost like all the guys, the scouts sitting together at the money ball table from the movie, you know? And then all of a sudden you're also thrown in something like, hey, you have this amazing quarterback prospect and he's Meb's height, 5'10". And that's kind of an outlier, right? Where you've had a couple quarterbacks that are on the shorter side, but, um, you know, in the modern game. Anyway, feel free to take that any way you want. But to trying to figure all these massive amounts of inputs, the name help? <laughs> and what do they do when they have something that's kind of on the, the outskirts? Dick and I have both spent time with teams over the years. Since this paper came out in 2005, we spent a lot of time with probably three or four different organizations having a pretty good sense of what the process looks like. And first, let's just say it's hard. I mean, this is a hard thing. And the the best in the business are going to be wrong. It's not unlike your business map. I mean, it's like the, you know, if you can be right, it's like the sports betters. If they can be right 55% of the time, they're going to make a really good living. These scouts are in the same kind of thing. This is really hard to get right. And there's only more information available now. But that is an argument for having good models. Human, We know enough about human psychology to know we aren't great at integrating all these different sources of information in a consistent way. We, in fact, we're tragically bad at it. And so the best organizations are finding ways to integrate these very different sources of information, but they do so, they get help in doing so. They do so mechanically, they do so with models. Some sports are ahead of other sports. If you go to baseball, Almost every team is pretty heavily model-based with some human inputs, but you go to football and it's still largely human with a few model 
inputs. And it's hard to do that way. Yeah. And it's hard to, I, I, I mean, I know of one case where a team brought in a quarterback and the coaches just didn't think he had the look of a NFL quarterback. And they took somebody else who was clearly worse. Now, out of sympathy, Dick, out of sympathy, this is the way the process works, at least in some organizations. It's astounding. The scouts will spend 12 months on this process, and they've got all the meetings and all the visits and all the reports, and they set the board with themselves. And then at the last minute, almost the proverbial last minute, the coaches roll in and they start chiming in. And, and the first time I saw this, I was like, oh my God, this was hard enough before. And now you've got this whole additional set of considerations. But let's acknowledge that it is a political job and they've got personalities to manage. They've got relationships to manage. They've got a building to manage. And how you incorporate the coach's perspective or not is important part of that. And so this is a hard thing for a general manager to do. He's got a head coach who has a preference between those quarterbacks. That's the most important player-coach relationship in the building. And so you got to factor it in somehow, or or you've got to have at least a process for not factoring in one of the two. It's delicate. That's a delicate business. Yeah, and then every once in a while, the owner has an opinion, too. (laughs) Every once in a while. Just occasionally. And some of them have pretty strong opinions, even uh, favoring the – school they happen to be an undergraduate at. So, you know, one thing that I've sort of appreciated over the years is how much I would not want that job. I mean, it seems, oh man, that's the dream job. You know, you're living the dream. You're getting a lot of money to basically do what you like to do for fun. And then, you know, something happens. I don't know. Remember when Tony Romo fumbled the uh, extra point snap and the team loses? Well, that's not in any model. And, you know, um, I bet Tony Romo did that exactly once in his career. And it was in a crucial and I don't know why I'm picking that. They just jumped into my mind. But there's so many thousands of those things over the course of the season. And as the season goes on and you get into the playoffs, they all get magnified. And, you know, look, Billy Bean never won a World Series. So some people still think he was an idiot. Dick, what was the what did Daryl say one time about some text? He was sitting down or was it Sig? Mydell, maybe it was Sig. So he, I think it was Sig. It's some playoff game when he was assistant GM down at um, Houston. And, you know, the start of the playoff games, he's like, well, how's it going? Sig? I'm just sitting here waiting to see which side the dice turn, turn out. You know, it's just like all, all of our, all we've invested into these playoffs. And so now it's essentially going to be, you know, a flip of the coin. Well, that's what makes Absolutely. it so fun. Fun, but yeah, I mean, I I would not, I would not have the stomach for it. It's funny because even, you know, being a quant and kind of knowing everything you guys have said, just playing through back like my personal childhood of being a Broncos fan. And I look at you and I say, well, wait, here's the exception of John Elway, right? The number one pick that changed the trajectory of this franchise. And then in the back of my head, I'm thinking about when Dan Reeves drafted Tommy Maddox, but also 
Pharrell Davis and Shannon Sharp, which I think were sixth and seventh rounders who are now, you know, Hall of Famers and um, almost got cut in Terrell Davis's example. We can't end this conversation without mentioning Brock Purdy. Go ahead. Let's hear it. Right. I mean, the Mr. Irrelevant, literally the guy, the last guy taken in the draft. I don't know whether Kyle Shannon even had an idea who this was. Uh, they probably had an eye on him and thought they'd dra- sign him as a free agent or something like that. But, you know, everybody else gets hurt, and he comes in with a few games left and looks like the real deal. And, you know, I you think about Kurt Warner, right? He, he's bagging groceries and playing arena football. And I'm always wondering how many people are out there. You think you think about putting on some cleats, Professor? Like what's yeah, the yeah. <laughs> well, no, after I win the Masters this weekend, you know. But no, you know, look, Tom Brady taken with the 199th pick wasn't really the starter at Michigan. And, you know, there's another role of the – if Drew Bledsoe doesn't get hurt, who knows whether Brady even gets a chance. You know, Dick's – one, Meb, you should know, there's Dick's favorite players in sports are late-round quarterbacks who take their play, their teams deep into the playoffs. This is literally his favorite thing that happens in sports. We're never, we're never going to run out of examples. It's wonderful. So Brock Purdy was a gift. Um but he's also raising an interesting point about what determines the success of these quarterbacks. And we tend to think, you know, they're either a great specimen, they'll grow into this great quarterback individual contributor, or they won't. And we don't appreciate all that happens around them that either facilitates or hinders that success. So just consider a couple of examples. I don't remember the 83 Broncos well enough to know what Elway had around him. I do know it took him until the last two years of his career to win a Super Bowl. But consider Brock, consider the system Brock Purdy got dropped into and how advantageous that was for him and his particular skill set. Consider who Brady got matched with in New England for all those years. And so we just think of this as a more independent process than it actually is. And again, it leads us to over-exaggerate the differences between these quarterbacks when we're under we're undervaluing altogether important factors that contribute to their success. Cade and I have had many long arguments with a buddy of ours, Alec, about whether the role of a quarterback is overemphasized. Uh, the importance, which is my view, and a- Alec's view is that it's impossible to overestimate how important the quarterback is. And, you know, I would make the argument, a completely ridiculous argument, that you could win a Super Bowl with Nick Foles as your quarterback. I thought you were going to say win a a Super Bowl with Tim Tebow. That would be my, that was going to be my reference. Well, you know, or uh, Joe Flacco, Yeah, you know. So I think the point I'm making is, If you put a quarterback on a really good team with good coaches, they have a chance to succeed. I have no idea 
whether Brock Purdy is an NFL quarterback. And and if the Panthers could take him, uh, would he succeed there? I don't know. You know, and it's not like Nick Foles was a great quarterback. We got to run that experiment when he wasn't with the Eagles in a good organization. He wasn't as good. But how good really is Mahomes? You know, Mahomes plus Reed is a, is a show we all would pay a lot of money to watch. And, you know, imagine if he's getting sacked six times a game. It's not going to be as pretty. So you're saying you just got to you got to trade your star quarterback for a ton of picks. And uh, that's the advice you're going to give everybody. That will not be popular, Professor. No, you need, <laughs> you know, uh, 53 players. And I like the Bears hand better than the Panthers hand because they're going to get a lot of players. And Fields, their quarterback, I don't know about him. But he's probably the expected value of what the Panthers will get. It'd be funny when the Bears actually draft another quarterback. That would be like the that would just set the world on fire. It's like their other pick. They just take another quarterback. <laughs> it could happen, and maybe that's the way to go. I mean, until you're sure you have your guy, and it's unlikely you do, by the way, base rate strongly against it. You should be keeping as many as many rods in the fire as possible. And this is the, the the worst place you want to be. Having the guy and paying him proper market money is a winning proposition. Having a serviceable person at a rookie contract is a apparently apparently winning proposition. What you don't want is some middle ground at the full price because that's kind of the alternative. And yet a lot of teams sign up for that gig on a regular basis. You know, maybe one other thing we ought to bring up that's interesting about all of this is what's going on with Lamar. So what is going on? Explain this to the listeners. I have no insider information. I mean, so, but you know, what, what can we all see? Lamar is obviously a very good quarterback. Many people, particularly people at the Ravens, think that the Browns overpaid Watson. Now, I don't think they paid more than they had to. They, they were the they were the high bidder in an auction, and obviously I don't want to get into all the other factors that went into that particular signing. But if we just go into the economics of it, they sort of set a price, and Lamar thinks that he's about as good a quarterback as Deshaun Watson, and... uh obviously can make that case. An economist may say he's anchoring. A behavioral economist might say he's anchored on that and loss averse. So, you know, if Deshaun's getting 50 million and Lamar, poor Lamar only has to settle for 40 million a year, he might be unhappy about that. But it certainly puts the Ravens in a box. And it'll be, you know, there's talk that the owners are all colluding. Again, I have I, I have no information about that. I don't know how we would know. We have seen that in other sports occasionally. 
But it's certainly, you know, suppose the Panthers had just said, uh, made an offer to Lamar. Lamar certainly better than the expected value of the quarterback they're going to get. But he's significant. But he's significantly more expensive. So back to your surplus question. Well, but yes, that's true. That's true. But what you hope is to sign a guy that you want to re-sign at market. That's the pot. Of, yes, you, it, it, it's great if you, you know, if you get Josh Allen on a rookie deal for four years. I mean, it's more. It's not just gravy. I mean, that's that's part of the deal. I mean, they've almost won the Super Bowl a couple of years running on that rookie contract, partly because of that rookie contract. Right, but that's run out. That is run out. But they had, but they had a good couple of runs at it. it oh, have absolutely, could have happened. Absolutely, and you know, it, it, other like the Bengals. Are the Bengals going to be able to continue to be good if they have to pay him market? It's going to be hard, right? Well, the Bengals made an appearance in this in the in the in the history of this paper, Meb. We the, the the name of the paper is the Losers' Curse, and where they came from. Like lit, I remember sitting in my office when we when we estimated this curve for the first time, and it went up, meaning the value of the draft picks went up from one to thirty-two, meaning the least valuable pick in the draft in the first round, not the whole draft in the draft was the first pick. One of the first things that was said, I don't even know which one of us said it was, this explains the Cincinnati Bengals. Because at the time, they you know, they were just mired. There's just decades of not much, doing much. And the idea was they keep on getting these early picks, but the early picks are actually a curse unless you move them. You know, thinking back to, you know, this paper's been out for a while, and it's a little more esoteric than, say, the three-point example in the NBA. I mean, thinking back to that is like any high school level stats. You didn't need Bill James to figure this out. Could just kind of do the math and sit there and say, huh, this is odd. Why don't we run an experiment? Why don't, you know, the people do things different? This one's a little, you know, a little more complicated, though clearly it's caused some real behavioral changes. When you look at like the broad tapestry of why this ARB still exists, why this behavior still exists, is the simple answer just incentives and career risk? Or is it something more complicated? Like, what, why why do we not have an AI version of, you know, professors, Cade and Dick, that can just say, like, you know, the, the Broncos pull up on draft day and they say, all right, well, let's just run the algo. Just let it spit out chat GPT version of these, these professors. Well, the quick thing is the robust effects are generally overdetermined. That's the reason they're robust. There are multiple factors contributing to them. And so in our paper, we unpack whatever, three or four, and we stop short of all the real world factors. So Dick can unpack some of them. I just want to say up top, when you see something this robust, it generally means that there are multiple factors pushing in this direction. Uh, let me say something that may or may not be helpful. Another example that's more like the three-point shot, but is football is punting. And the first place we ever presented our paper, most fun thing I ever did was organize a conference in Scottsdale in spring training, just with a bunch of my buddies. David Romer presented an early version of his going for it on fourth down paper. We presented our paper. 
Bill James was there. Billy Bean actually showed up for half a day. But, you know, that punting, again, now all the football geeks agree with Romer's initial valuation, again, with much, much better data. And teams are slowly getting better. And many of the smarter teams have some analytics person that's whispering in the ear of the coach to help them. But what I think is true, like not taking enough three-point shooting and not uh, going for it enough on fourth down and not trading down, these can last a long time because doing the right thing is unconventional. And if you do something unconventional and it doesn't work, you get hammered. I remember there was, remember once Belichick went for it inside, you know, behind the 50 and didn't make it and people were ready to fire it. It literally set the league back years on fourth down. And so, you know, it's again, it's easy for us to say what we would do that, you know, we're applauding the Bears this year and uh, dumping on the Panthers. But, you know, if I'm a general manager and I've got three kids that I have to pay tuition for and I've had two bad years and the fans are grumbling and my owner is cranky. It, it's easy to do the popular thing and it's hard to do the, the, the different thing. Sounds like you're describing the entire field of uh, institutional money management. If, uh, if, if, if I had to liken it to my day job, you know, when you mentioned Belichick, I thought for a second, I keep bringing this back to the Broncos. I thought you were going to talk about when Brady punted on third down, which is a tactic you don't see very much anymore. But it was against the Broncos. And I said, as far as quant ideas, that's definitely way out there as far as analytics. Question. So 10 years in the future, we're at the MIT analytics conference, hanging out with, with Cade, and he's hosting a panel. He's looking back and say, man, 2023, that was obvious you know, this glaring example in 2023. So the three-point example of 30 years ago, what, what is the most glaring example you guys look at today that athletes or teams or owners ignore? Is there anything that comes to mind where you're just like, this is so obvious. Why doesn't anyone do this? Any thoughts? I'll give one candidate. It's not that no one does it, but it's given how obvious it does seem. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why more teams don't do it. And it's just position value in the draft. So it's been talked about for a long time, but it was really clear in one of the recent replications of our work where they broke the curves out by every position. And, And you just see how much more valuable, not only the quarterback is from the other positions, but how some of the other high profile positions that like cornerback, edge rusher, that they're just worth more than mostly in inside positions. And some teams 
pay attention to that when they allocate their draft capital. What the, what that's suggesting is you have to pick, you have to populate all these positions, of course, but you only get some of them through the draft. Early round draft picks, some positions are just so much more valuable. You get 50%, 100%, 75% more value just by getting the right position. You can't get that by picking a better player. No team is reliably better at picking players than another team. Just pick the right position. Allocate the capital, the early draft capital by position, and you get it's just the expectation is that you have significantly better value. Some teams do this, but it ought to be given the differences. It ought to be the only way the early capital is spent. And I suspect over time, more and more, it will go that way. You know, earlier I was making the completely blasphemous argument that quarterbacks are considered too important. And I think part of that is that they're involved. They cut touch the ball on every play. And everything they do is highly salient. Uh, a less controversial and, in fact, Conventional wisdom among the analytics community is that running backs are overvalued. And I think the smart teams are not drafting running backs in the first round. And, you know, compare a running back with a left tackle. The You know, you get the running back breaks one for 50 yards and looks like a hero. And everybody can say, wow, look at that guy. The left tackle, uh, the only time you notice him is if uh, he screwed up. He held or his guy got by him and sacked the quarterback. So I think there's a pretty simple salient story for why running backs would be overvalued and offensive linemen would be undervalued. Dick, I don't know if you remember that when we first ran our analysis and broke it up by position, we found one that everybody, the expected value, the expected surplus for every position at every point in the draft was positive because of those rookie contracts. Just like you said, it suppresses value. Fine. But when you break it up by position, the one position that was negative anywhere in expectation was early first round running backs. It was literally the only position and the only point in the draft where you're, you have literally negative expected surplus. And that we saw that in whatever it was, 2004, 2005. I think you're right that people are picking up on this, clearly, but some aren't. I mean, how long ago was Saquon Barkley the second pick in the draft? Three years ago, maybe? And and lauded across the board by many people. And so there, there's some wisdom growing on running backs, but it needs to expand into inside linebackers, interior offensive linemen, even into safeties. It just, that philosophy needs to grow. And all you got to do is look at the expected surplus by position in that first round. And it is categorically different across some of these positions. It's a, it's a, other than, other than trading away picks, especially trading away for future picks, there's no better guaranteed value than allocating it to the right position. Yeah. You know, something you just brought up, Gabe, Reminds me that's some a point that we haven't talked about, but is particularly relevant for for your crowd is the probably the most surprising anomaly we found was the discount rate for future picks. And people that have come into the league and started studying this have come back to me and say, 
Wow. Yeah, I didn't believe you guys. But so, you know, there's a rule of thumb that you can trade a third round pick this year for a second round pick next year. So you you get one round per year. That's the exchange rate. Now it's simple. But when when we ran the numbers back in the day, that came out to be a discount rate of 137% or something like that. I had the exact same number and had neither one of us has in the paper in years, but that's the exact same number. So don't say it's like, we're well, not exaggerating. It's that precise. It's that high, 137%. So, you know, smart teams are trading picks this year for picks next year. That's crazy to me. Is that, is that front office? Is that owner? Cause I'm like, again, if I'm the Waltons, I'm going to send this to my Broncos people. If I'm the Waltons, you know, I'd be all day long, be like, you know what? We're making. We're going to do the long game, and every day of the week you would make that trade. First of all, it's usually the, it's often the owner who wants to win now. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, what wh- what do you need to do that, Arb? You need an owner who buys in, and a GM who is. Confident that he's not going to get fired? Already, those two things are rare. Already, that combination is rare. Right. And if, you know, the teams that have been doing it are teams where those things are present. And if the owner isn't predisposed to that, it's the he's been persuaded of the error of his ways. And, you know, I think it's easier to say than to do. And it it goes back to, you know, the going for it on fourth down. I think that is now considered to be smart, whereas it used to be considered risky and the announcers, of course, still haven't gotten this. Oh, he's rolling the dice. <laughs> right? You know, like you're at midfield and you punt the ball to Patrick Mahomes. That's There's no dice rolling there. What could go wrong? But, you know, if instead you go for it and fourth and one at midfield, that's rolling the dice. So I, I think as conventional wisdom changes, then it gets easier to do the right thing. So the, what the smart teams are doing is if they're doing a deal, and I don't know the, the, the details of this Bears-Panthers deal, but I suspect there were some future picks in there. The teams that trade down also tend to be willing to be paid in future picks because they're the teams that know that that's the arb. All right. My AI over here says the bears get Carolina's nine. They're uh, a late round second is a late second round pick. Number 61, 2024 first round in a 2025 second round. There you go. But the bears get DJ Moore. So yeah, 
So, <laughs> and you're going to see that pattern that the, the teams that are willing to move all the way back to nine and get a boatload of picks, uh, they'll get some of them next year. And uh, because the team they're dealing with is impatient. My team doesn't have a first round pick this year, the Broncos, because of the Russell Wilson trade, which I don't want to spend any time on because it's probably too traumatic. But uh, I think I've got another hour we could devote to Russell Wilson. On our last podcast, you know, as I was um, talking kind of in the money management world, I was like trying to figure out how to align some incentives. And because I see investors do dumb stuff all the time, not just retail, but institutional too, and trying to figure out ways to make them help them behave. And Cade, you had a great article where I was talking about algorithms and people don't trust them. So you kind of tweak them a little bit, but also think about the incentives of the front office or the owners where you say, you know what? And I heard one of you guys talk about this, but um, said, hey, let's tie part of your compensation or structure to how much we're winning three, five, 10 years from now. Not next year, but act like, and I don't know if anyone would ever design a contract that way, but what an interesting, obvious sort of alignment idea. You know, you don't even really see that in the business world much. I mean, you, you see it indirectly that high-level managers are getting paid in stock options. But I think it's quite rare that they get paid for out years. And uh, I think it would be really smart. And there are lots of people in charge in business and in government that will take a win now and let somebody else bear the cost of it later. And, you know, there are pension plans all around the world that suffer from that. And the, the big demonstrations going on in France are an example of it. You know, the people before Macron knew there was a problem and didn't have the guts to fight it. And he's trying to do the right thing. And uh, I don't know whether, whether he'll survive it. So doing the right thing is hard. Cade, you're not in agreement over there. You got any thoughts? <laughs> oh, I love it. I'm fully aligned with with, with Dick on this. Um, I, I know I've had these kinds of conversations and it just, for some reason, it seems beyond practical, beyond what people feel like can actually do. I mean, and Dick's right. If they're not doing it in what we think of as sophisticated organizations, businesses, big businesses, what hope do we have of seeing these, these sports franchises are, are pretty pretty family small they're not run with that same sophistication so but anytime you have managerial consequences downstream their incentives should be connected to that consequence well you guys are not in agreement a lot what do you guys disagree about when you get together for a round of golf or coffee or beer what are you guys actually uh in disagreement about oh don't get us started (laughs) (laughs) there's some subject there is one subject in particular that we've agreed to not talk about ever yeah and Um, it's it, you know, it's it's not like I once kicked his dog. It's like the wonkiest thing you can imagine. And uh, you're not going to tempt us to get into it right now. But 
we both have pretty high opinions of the other's intellect, except on this issue where we think the other guy is just an idiot. This is a good preview for the next podcast we do together. You guys will see. We could do a whole podcast on this. This is like the page turner at the end. They're like, and he gets ready to fall off a cliff. You know, you know, you never know. Maybe you could you could adjudicate you. We could we could decide we could we could like roll it out as a case, and you could decide in the end, and then that would be it. That would we decide for all time who wins the argument. You guys, this has been a blast. I would love to keep you for another hour or two. I, I didn't even get to any of my show notes, but it's Masters Week. Professor, I know I know you've played there. I was going to uh, try to do some sort of reader poll to see you. Like it's like the old jelly beans in the jar. Who could guess your score when you played Augusta <laughs> and see who comes closest without knowing anything about you? I can tell you that most amateur golfers would uh, shoot a score similar to the one they shoot at their home course. Okay. And the amateur, the average amateur golfer also doesn't break a hundred. Yeah. But so so take a bogey golfer. They're going to find Augusta from the member. There are only two tees. There's the master's tees and the member's tees. And from the member's tees, and they haven't rolled the greens because the members, (laughs) members don't want to put the ball into the pond on 12. But, you know, there's no real rough, and the every blade of grass has been manicured with nail clippers. So it's beautiful, uh, but it's not it's not that hard for an amateur. Cade, Cade, it sounds like he's making excuses, trying to, like, talk talk down that he, like, actually shot, like, in the 80s or something on this course. So Dick can score, but the, but the most interesting thing to me about this is that Dick wins the Nobel Prize, and he can kind of – the world is his oyster, right? He can do anything, literally. Like, just what do you want to do, Dick? And the thing he wanted to do, I mean, more power to him. He wanted, there was one thing he wanted from the world, and that was to play the Masters, to play Augusta. It's all worthwhile. There you go. All those all those years toiling I away. wouldn't mind doing it again, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Listeners, if you want to take these guys up on a foursome, let me know. We'll, uh, I'll, uh, I'll help. Um, all right, who do you guys pick? Last question. Who's your Ajahn favorite to win this weekend? Uh, in Cade's honor, I'll pick Scotty the Texan. Well, just to make it a two for then, I, you took the you took the literal market favorite, which is which is I think a, a very reasonable thing to do. But I'll just make it a Longhorn two for and take Jordan Spieth for finally getting over the major hump after a long drought, and one of those Longhorns surely one of those Longhorns will get it done. And meanwhile, I'll be rooting. I spend half my time at Berkeley, and I'll be rooting for. Oma and Morikawa, who are uh, two Berkeley guys. And obviously, either of them could win as well. Well, Scheffler seems like the safe pick. You guys have talked about the hot hand in golf. So I'm going to go with the cold hand who hasn't. I don't know if he's ever won the Masters. Either way, it's been a while. So I'm going to take McElroy. Has he ever won the Masters? I don't know that he has. I don't think, I don't think so. so. He's been a long drought, although he's always there. So, Love it. Um, no, you know, you're not going out on a real very far. Lead. None of us, none yeah. of us are very far. We took, yeah. we just named three of the top eight yeah. golfers yeah. on the odds list. Gentlemen, it was a blessing. Thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you, man. Thoroughly enjoyed. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, check out the link in the show notes for our episode last year with poker champion Annie Duke, where she talked about quitting and some best practices around decision making. 
Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.